0: Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Marus, founder and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. Some experts predict the demise of community banking organizations challenged by changed consumer behavior, outdated infrastructure and evolving competitive landscape and the high cost of digital transformation. Is there a viable niche for community banks and credit unions in the industry that increasingly is being dominated by mega banks or are we entering an era of too small to succeed? If there is a niche, what needs to be done today? Our guest today is Jeff Marceco, president of the Carfaffian Group Incorporated and author of the new book, Squared Away, How Can Bankers Succeed as Economic First Responders? Jeff's going to discuss the role community banks and credit unions play in an increasingly demanded banking ecosystem. So welcome to the show, Jeff. Glad to have you on the show. Thanks, Jim. Good to see you. You know, it's been a long time since we sat down together and presented a conference, you know, but it's obvious that you must be as busy as ever, given all the changes in our industry. How have you been?
1: I've been all right. It's been a Zoom-based world. And, you know, you know from traveling around like you travel around that being home so much gets the family a little antsy about getting you out of the house. And that's where I am.
0: (laughs) Boy, that's where I am also. So uh, before we dig into the perspective about the state of banking in a post-pandemic world, can you share a bit about your background and also the Carfaffian Group?
1: Yeah, so I started as a community banker myself. I like to jab some of our mutual friends that I was a pioneer in fintech myself. I ran a Datagraphics 4590 microfiche maker in a Scranton, Pennsylvania community bank back in 1985. So I was a pioneer of fintech. But from those humble beginnings, I've done things in banking and IT, I've done them in the trust, I was a branch manager at one point in my career, I did inter- internal consulting and merger consolidation at a large bank that was based in Baltimore. And that kind of launched the 20 year consulting career because I was an internal consultant there. Also, I an interesting side note was I was in the Navy for seven years, I was an intelligence analyst, which people say is a contradiction in terms but in the consulting realm uh, my firm the kafafi group does performance measurement on an outsourced basis for community-based financial institutions so we measure the profitability of branches products lines of business etc so it gives us a lot of insights we do strategic planning and process reviews and financial advisory so that's basically what uh, my background is I, i i dabble in all of them and uh i'm happy to be here and that's kind of the genesis that went behind the book, plus with all this released travel time during the pandemic, I had that time.
0: You know, it's interesting. You you, you really focus on the community banking industry. And what have you seen to be the biggest challenges to growth, profitability, and even existence faced by community financial institutions today? Change,
1: Jim. It's difficult to argue with the success when a financial institution has generations of success under its belt, and it's tough to go in and say, and now you must change. Change is one of those things with taxes, right, and death that are supposed to be perpetual. But in financial institutions, in a highly regulated industry like financial institutions, that wasn't the culture where a lot of senior executives came from. So I think the biggest challenge to a financial institution is change. And that comes with a lot of the things that you talk about, the digital transformation. But when we talk to financial institutions and talk about digital transformation, none of them are big enough to be able to say digitize everything we do. So they have to choose what to digitize, which means that they have to actually look within their customer base in their markets to figure out who are their most profitable customers. What customers have the greatest lifetime values to the financial institutions and also are a in the markets that we operate in so that we know we have to digitize in these five areas first and these 20 areas we could defer. So I think getting to that level of detail, because the digitization is happening so fast, the financial institutions, yeah. they have to make choices, Jim. They have to make choices. And it's
0: it's coming slow. Well, it's interesting. You said the biggest challenge is the previous success. I mean, we we've gone through a pretty doggone good run, and even during the pandemic, we thought the challenges would be greater than they ended up being. So you know, you sometimes have intentional blinders. Or you take the foot off the pedal a little bit from a business and competitive perspective. What do you think the biggest advantages are that community banks and credit unions have in the marketplace?
1: Yeah, so I love the United States banking model, and I know a lot of your audience is, is international, but we're a very decentralized type of market. I know that we've been consolidating now for two generations in terms of financial institutions, but in 1990, we had 15,000 financial institutions, FDIC insured. And now we have under 5,000 FDIC insured and about the same amount of NCUA insured credit unions. But decentralization is critical to the American flavor of capitalism in that the distribution of capital, the decisions on how to distribute capital is made as close to the individual as possible. And I like to give the example of an Amish farmer based in rural Indiana. Do you think that an Indiana based financial institution will be much better prepared to underwrite that credit than a centralized credit analyst in Charlotte, North Carolina? So, the unique capitalist model of the United States calls for decentralization of the distribution of capital. And the biggest advantage that a community financial institution has is its closeness to its customers.
0: It's interesting because we've done a lot of research on digital transformation for the Digital Banking Report, and organizations over the last year, even after the pandemic took hold and a lot of good changes were made, from a digital transformation, from an innovation, and even from a data and analytic perspective, organizations tended to rate themselves lower than they did the year before, with the lowest ratings coming from what I'm going to call the mid-tier, the the not the community level, but bigger than the community, the regional banks. But from a digital transformation perspective, how do community banks and credit unions keep up with what the consumer is asking for from a digital banking perspective?
1: Yeah, I think, one, understanding who your target audience is. Try not to follow shiny objects. Because, you know, if you go all the way back to the 70s and 80s, I mean, Banking has been digitizing almost since the 1960s, but it's been slow. It's been like the the Comcast commercial, the slow skis. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. It's been at tortoise pace, and there's actually a penalty for being an early adopter. It, it was better in financial institutions to sip umbrella drinks and let somebody else go into the deep end and let them trial and fail because there really wasn't a penalty for waiting till something was more adoptable or uh, more implementable. So that's kind of yeah. where we're coming off of, but now we can't, things are moving on so much faster. We're no longer the slow skis. I'm not saying that we're the hares anymore, but we have to make choices and just look at during the PPP process. I know community financial institutions have taken a couple of victory laps there, but I think the big victory lap there is, People saw the challenge. They knew their target audience, the small businesses in their market, and then they went out and got the technology to actually do it. Right? If you look at our friend, Jill Castillas, they developed the technology, a $350 million bank in Edmond, Oklahoma, partnered with a technology shop to build that front end PPP solution in a week or two's time. If you look at Cross River Bank in New Jersey, this is a banking as a service bank. They are pretty much the engine bank behind a, a few marketplace lenders, but they, they're they like in the top 10 PPP issuers in the country. They were a $2 billion bank when the, when the crisis started. So they partnered with Mantle, a FinTech firm that does front end account, end to end account opening. So they could fund all of those PPP loans. Uh, on their balance sheet, and they had that up and running to get CDs across the country to fund those PPP loans within two weeks. We have to be able to, one, identify those digital demands of our customers, but we have to first know who our customers are so we can prioritize them and then put that PPP fintech adoption
0: speed in 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 the motion. So that being said, do you believe that one of the biggest missed opportunities in community banking marketplace is to partner with solution providers and even fintech providers that can assist in digitalization and innovation need to remain relevant, that the, they provide some speed? Is that, is that an opportunity that financial institutions of all sides, but specifically community banks, really have to embrace and, and to move forward efficiently?
1: Yeah, they do. And I think they can do it. They proved that they could do it during PPP when they implemented these projects in two to four weeks' time. We can no longer take six months to evaluate and six months to implement a technology solution. By that time, it might not even be
0: relevant. So that being said... You know, as you mentioned, the community banks really did a better job of PPP loans and their much bigger peers. They were out there. They had recreated something that didn't even exist on a Friday morning. They got it up by, by the end of the weekend. What enabled these smaller finance institutions to achieve what their bigger counterparts didn't?
1: Well, that gets back to what does a, a community financial institution have as a competitive advantage over the larger ones? And that's closeness to their community. Early in the PPP process, I don't even think Wells Fargo participated for the first week no. or two because they were fearful of the changing requirements. Uh, and they thought that, you know, uh, Wells uh, was under regulatory scrutiny. So they were fearful of moving forward at a fast pace and then having the regulators come back after them. Whereas a community financial institution said, let's go get it. And they not only opened the doors to their customers, And they didn't prioritize like like the big banks did big banks said customers first and a lot of the small businesses actually did not have a specific lender or relationship manager to call so they didn't even know who to call but a community bank generally will have a relationship manager for almost every business in their orbit
0: what's interesting is in my situation i i finally got some information about ppp loans but it was a generalized email as everything from my big five bank gives me never never specific to my needs in the same information they gave me about ppp loans available they gave me a phone number to call which was a general phone number they told me a place on a website to go they also said but in the meantime if you don't need these things Sign up for online banking and mobile banking, and also make sure you know that you can deposit your checks with mobile deposit capture. That hit me the wrong way because, in each case, I already did that. I already participated in online banking and and mobile banking. I do my checks that way. So it's frustrating because I'm going, you know, how much are you going to know about me? How much? What are my chances of getting any kind of listening? if you don't even know who I am or if you haven't paid attention. So, you know, as you said, that's, that's a big advantage for a community financial institution. So your career been, as a consultant has been really focused on helping financial institutions uncover profitable strategies and create cultural operating discipline to better serve constituencies such as employees, customers, shareholders, and the communities. It's a traditional community financial institution business model and revenue stream Still viable? Uh,
1: yes, I would say one that closest to the customer is one of the differentiating factors that they need to exploit significantly. I'm not saying they do it right, and I like yeah. to I like to joke around that my financial institution has called me once uh, that, but but my financial institution, which started as a community financial institution, actually got merged up to one of the big banks. So, community financial institutions need to implement strategies that put them close to the customer, but to do that. They need to implement strategies to make the gears of their engine work more efficiently so they could dedicate resources into that endeavor of taking care of their customers, not just digitally, but also on a handshake-to-handshake basis. Someday when we do handshake, again, uh, they need to be able to do that. Right now, I think community financial institutions dedicate a little bit too significant resources into their support functions and not enough into their frontward-looking functions. That includes the marketing function. We haven't reached the level of sophistication in marketing yet that, you know, some of these Googles of the world, and I'm not saying we have to be Googles, but certainly that relationship manager should be able to come in, power up their computer, and they should have an indication that Jeff Marcico is probably open to a home equity loan because of the activity in his accounts.
0: So- You know, it goes without saying that most community banks and credit unions have really relied on the positive nature of the one-on-one engagement, as you've mentioned, as a differentiator. How can community banks provide this level of engagement when the consumers really shifted quite a bit to digital as opposed to branch engagement?
1: Yeah. So that's an excellent question. The switch to digital is primarily based on transaction processing. So this is a big paradigm shift in community financial institutions. So we have built our employee base on the ability to seamlessly and without error process transactions. And that is what is significantly moved to digital. But if you look at survey after survey, people still demand branches, but not for what they demanded branches for in the past. They demanded for advice. They demand it for loans. They demand it to troubleshoot problems. Now, I think that there'll be a continued decline in branching, but we need to be able to pivot and put advisors in branches versus efficient transaction processors because that simply has moved onto the internet of things.
0: Well, our research found that certain things, simple what I'll call transactions, such as new account opening, loan application, all that, has gone increasingly to digital, but really not in the way that consumers want. In fact, we found that, you know, somebody wanted to open an account via a mobile device It takes 15 to 20 minutes, which is far from being digital. So as consumer expectations increase and the foundations of legacy banking is disrupted from a delivery perspective, how much needs to be changed with regard to legacy processes and operations in order to enable banking going digital?
1: Yeah, so we have to look within ourselves at the processes because many of the processes aren't necessarily inherent in the technology solution that's implemented. It's inherent in the risk mitigation culture in the financial institution itself. If you remember when mobile deposits, retail mobile deposits, taking a picture of your check at home and depositing it was first coming on the scene like three or four years ago, I can't remember the time, banks were reviewing every single one that came in. So you could have deposited a check for a buck 40 and somebody would have reviewed that for fraud. So sometimes, especially when something is new in adoption, you wanna mitigate the risk of fraud. So you do a belt and suspenders approach towards risk mitigation. And banks need to walk off of that. They need to make an assessment of the real risk. So maybe they only put eyeballs on checks that are over $3,000 that come in or something of that nature. They need to do risk reward assessments on the belts and suspenders processes that
0: they're implementing in their banks. Well, again, this kind of gets back to the partnering aspect of things because sometimes organizations have a really hard time letting go of a process that's been built over time. I had a, a conversation, an interview with Don Ventura from US Bank. And he said, you know, there's never been a process we don't we take away from. We always add something to it. And he goes, he had to actually get somebody in that basically said, let's blow the whole thing up, let's start with nothing, and figure out what has to be added. And that that's really something that many times that's the partnership aspect of what goes on. So getting yourselves in or, or a, a solution provider that specializes in a certain function to get them to come in and say, by the way, guys, you don't need to do it this way anymore. There's a better way. It's hard to open your eyes. If you know, you're a small organization, you don't, have, you don't have people on every process, but this is where the partnership thing comes in also in that it allows you to move faster, but also allows you to avoid those detours and those rough roads that are along the way if you if you don't follow what others have done.
1: And that could end up being a competitive advantage for a smaller financial institution. Now, I know that you have to achieve some level of size in order to absorb the costs inherent in banking, but a smaller financial institution has the ability to break down processes because there's just not a significant number of people back there executing them. You go into a Bank of America... It's a deep state in there. It's hard to break up a process.
0: Oh, gosh. Hard, hard to find the person who's in charge of a process. Right. I've, I've I've worked with them and I said, is everybody here a senior vice president? You know, you, you got to the point, you go, how do I determine? Because in a smaller organization, you kind of can see levels. You can't see it in a big organization because everybody's, you know, at, at what seems to be at the same level. Yeah.
1: Right. We were just on a call with a bank earlier today about their lending process. And it's in a sad shape but they're like we're not even sure who owns this process. I said, "Well, tell everybody that you're bringing in a third-party consultant to review the process and the one that objects the most
0: owns the process." Hey, good point. There you go. You know, and we also said that you want to bring in compliance early in the equation because you don't want them just to make a, a an adjustment or a, a judgment on something that's already been built and worked on, you know, make them part of the process. So Finally before our break how about the need to create a best in class digital engagement functionality how can smaller financial institutions keep pace with what's being done in digital banking by the big guys
1: Yeah I think it's partnership I I don't think that a lot of banks should it, undertake the fintech equity investment and risk I think that there are enough firms in the ecosystem to be able to have choices on which technology to adopt and implement, and I think they have, those fintechs have enough project experience with the main core processors of financial institutions to be able to implement quickly. Now, I do think that there's drag from the core processors because they always want to implement their solution, and that should certainly be in, in the evaluation process But, you know, if you want to do online account opening, I can point to four or five outside of the core processor that will help you
0: out. You know, and, and that's a very good point. And I think a lot of organizations miss that. They say, well, my core processor can provide that. Well, can they provide the best in class situation, whatever the situation may be? And what's really nice about the solution providers, including the core processors, they're all used to working with each other. You don't have to wait until your data is perfect or your systems are perfect or anything else. These organizations are used to working with each other and all the nuances and all the the warts and wrinkles that go along with it, which really speeds up the process. And as you said early in our conversation, it's about speed and simplicity the ability to bring it to market, to bring it to market fast, you know, that's why PPP loans work so well that people quickly found a partner that could do it and they did it and they beat everybody else. While other organizations spent a long time just deciding, geez, what do we do next? You know, legacy processes. So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor of the podcast. Is your organization trying to embrace digital banking transformation in 2021. Are you trying to elevate the customer experience? Figure out what technology you want to implement to improve the customer journey? Look at data analytics to really better understand and personalize the customer experience? and are you trying to make it so more of your employees can buy into and be part of your digital banking transformation? If this sounds like you, I ask you to reimagine banking with our newest podcast sponsor, Microsoft. They give you the opportunity to unlock new opportunities at speed throughout innovative business models, deliver differentiated customer experiences across channels, products, and services, and redefine new ways of banking. Microsoft and its partner ecosystem help banks to achieve differentiation through Sustainable growth, streamlining core systems, reducing cost and risk, and delighting customers and employees. If you're in the midst of a journey, trying to figure out what to do next, maybe trying to find out what other organizations are doing to lift up their experience level, I really encourage you to look at Microsoft. For more information, visit Microsoft.com slash financial services. Welcome back to Banking Transform. So I'm joined today by Jeff Marcico, president of the Carfaffian Group, and author of the new book, Squared Away, How Can Bankers Succeed as Economic First Responders? So, so Jeff, we've talked about a lot of different things. So right now, a lot of organizations are talking about how do they cut costs? And can smaller institutions really cut costs enough to remain competitive? Or is that really maybe not even necessary from your perspective?
1: No, I think it's a continuous improvement attitude. And, you know, Jim, if you look at the cost of operating a branch, it's about on average between six hundred and seven hundred thousand and $700,000 of operating expense per annum to run a branch. But what most folks don't see is it costs almost equally amount in support functions to support a branch. In other words, the deposit operations, the IT department, the bank overhead. So that storefront generally is costing a bank $1.2 million to run. But if I close a branch, the 600,000 of support function expenses are not going away. So I think that there are opportunities to digitize many of the processes that go on in the back room. There should be no reason why somebody in deposit operations spends two hours reconciling their core to their card processor account. That a piece of artificial intelligence should be able to develop that report and have somebody sign off on the reconciliation. Those are the types of in the gears bowels that I think digital transformation and financial institutions will pay the biggest dividends particularly if they want to dedicate more resources to their front-facing people. They want to continue to branch in some limited capacity, but also, like I say in my book, have those resources to be able to have higher-level employees, right, to support their communities with a higher purpose, and, you know, to be able to really treat their customers in a differentiated way than the very large financial institutions.
0: One of the things that we've been talking about quite a bit is the need to involve employees in the whole digitalization process. Because if I'm an employee of a branch, or if I'm an employee in the back office working on deposit services you brought up, the concern I have every day I wake up is the digital side of the bank is a competitor to me. It could take my job. And I think that's where leadership and culture really comes into play is you really need to involve the employees at the front end and say, you know what? we may change your job, but you're not going to lose your job. You know, for instance, branch employees that may not have to meet face-to-face on a transaction level with a consumer could very easily be redeployed as being part of the ongoing onboarding and customer relationship management where they can be picking up the phone or doing a video call or something of that nature and support the overall building of the overall relationship that they only had a minor ability to do before. So I think it's a redeployment. But the research we've done for the Digital bank Report shows that one of the greatest barriers to digital transformation is legacy leadership and culture. You talked about this right off the bat when we had our conversation today. You write about this in your book, emphasizing the importance of people and from the top down in smaller banks. Can you provide your perspective on how smaller banks can rethink their business more from top down and how they can possibly change that legacy thinking?
1: Yeah, I talk in the book a lot about alignment. So what you had mentioned, Jim, say a bank community financial institution has a 10-person deposit operations. And if they digitized end-to-end, they could do it with six people. But you know what? It would be six people doing higher level work, probably getting compensated more. So in that context, it actually is in their best interest to be able to figure out how to digitize the things that they're doing. And also the alignment of incentives creates this Adam Smith invisible hand approach. And I talk a little bit about this in the book about building a positive accountability culture. If you hold, say, for example, a branch manager accountable for increasing the amount of deposit spread in their branch rather than number of accounts or just deposit balances all of a sudden that branch manager is making pricing decisions that benefit both bank and customer they're not calling the regional manager for some pricing exception on a cd or a money market account because they need to keep the money in the bank because they know that that is against their incentive to increase the spread in their account so Banks should consider aligning incentives with their strategy, have their strategy be more expansive than last year plus 5%, build a higher purpose into your strategy, and serve all of your stakeholders, which I think, by the way, is very consistent with the past podcast you had with Bradley Lemer and Theo Lau and their book, beyond good, yeah. right? They talk at a much higher level. Yeah. Mine's much more granular on what can a financial institution do to serve its stakeholders. But I think they're totally aligned in terms of doing well by doing good.
0: Well, you know, and and that's really, again, what sets the community banking organizations apart, especially because of the pandemic. People are becoming more aware of the organizations around them, the smaller restaurants, the the smaller businesses that really are trying to give back to the community. And while there may be a place still for the big bank to be a a partial participant in my financial well-being, you know, I think a lot more people are going to reach out to the small organization as long as they're not holding us back. And in many cases, they aren't and can move forward in pace with what I need. I don't need the best and the greatest. I just need to know that I'm, I'm important to an organization. It, you know, it's it's why a lot of people change every organization they work with. It's because it, it's the people. And, and I think that's a key component. And as I said in a previous podcast also, you know, it's the key to find a way where you can humanize an engagement, even though using digital. So that gets down to personalization, data and things in this nation. We've already talked about the importance of partnering. So Jeff, given all the priorities on the agenda of all size financial institutions, but especially the small organizations. What should be the first order of business for community banks as they rethink their role in the banking ecosystem going forward?
1: Yeah, I think they ought to follow the lead of the business roundtable in 2019 that shifted their definition of the corporation from one that is there to serve shareholders to one that is there to serve stakeholders. And stakeholders for a community-based financial institution is not only their shareholders, but it is their shareholders. You shouldn't do this to their detriment. But it's also the, the customers, it's the employees, and it's their communities. All of these are interrelated. If you do well in your community and build your community up, your financial institution is much more likely to thrive than if you're in a community that is dying. So stakeholder primacy versus shareholder primacy is the path to the future. And knowing your financial institution and the type of customers that you serve, that that have great lifetime value with you, that you can serve profitably, and then implement and prioritize those technologies and the people skills around those customer cohorts. I think that's going to be the strategy. It's going to be stakeholder primacy, and focus.
0: Yeah. And, you know, getting back to your very first comment, feeling willing to change. You know, I sometimes talk about intentional blindness that, you know, organizations know what they should do. They know how they can do it. They just don't pull the trigger. And and sometimes the fact that top management is many times surrounded by a lot of people that came up through the system with them, and they're all familiar with each other, all saying the same thing. You can get blinded by what really needs to be done. So, Finally, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Jeff. You know, I have been in this industry a long time and realized that despite the handwriting on the wall, many organizations of all sizes continue to either have the intentional blindness I brought up or simply don't want to change. Knowing that many organizations won't listen to what we're talking about here, won't listen to what you write and what you've done in your book. How do you see our industry shrinking in the next five to 10 years? Give, give me a rough percentage. How how much smaller do you think it's going to be from a number of organizations? Obviously, you know, a lot of this will happen through merger and acquisition, but do you see the shrinking increasing in scale compared to what has been recently? And and roughly, what do you see the percentage changing?
1: I think we're going to decline 4% per year, which is our recent past wow. before the pandemic is to continue decline it at, at 4% percent per year and that will be driven by customer preference changes it'll be driven by succession you see a lot of financial institutions not do a great job at developing their mid-level leaders to be senior level leaders so when they age out they sell their financial institution so i think that's one of the challenges but also global disruption regulatory burdens and is a challenge it puts a lot of pressure on small financial institutions If you look at the mergers of 2020, there were only 118 in the bank space, but 65% of the 118 were under 250 million in assets. So clearly there needs to be a certain size economy of scale to be able to absorb those regulatory technology and people costs inherent uh, in banking. So I think we're going to keep a pace at at 4% for all of those reasons. But Jim, if you and I succeed, It'll go down to 3%. It'll go down to 2%. And maybe we'll even start to see de novo Bank regeneration.
0: You know, that's, that's a great thought. And, and it's interesting because there is the potential here. We, we talked about it before we got on the air that, you know, combining two organizations with legacy thinking into one bigger organization just makes a bigger bad organization. And, and, and that's pretty blunt here. But if an organization is not willing to look at how the whole industry is changing, what consumers are looking for, they're not looking for the same thing they did before, but they're looking for some of those components. You know, I went to many of the same restaurants or I ordered from many of the same restaurants during the pandemic. But those who weren't able to serve me efficiently, weren't able to have delivery, weren't able to take care of what my needs were, I stopped using And some of them went out of business. And that's the same for retail stores. You know, see, you've got to combine the best of both worlds. Jeff, before we get off the the line today, how do people get your book? And before I I ask you that, and you're going to tell me the the same line everybody else does, thank you very much for sending your book to me. I appreciated it. It also, anybody who's interested in a how-to book, and I say this with all sincerity, Jeff gets down into the weeds. He, he does not just give you glory theory and think that may work and things you've heard from me in the past. He gets down into exactly what he has seen work at other organizations. He gets into everything from spreadsheets to specific recommendations that any organization could actually use as a guide to survival. It's a survival guide. So kudos to you for what you've done. You've done it before. You, you did it live in events you don't shy away from telling people exactly, not not globally, but exactly what they need to do and the focus being on the small organizations is is key here as well. so thank you very much for being on the show today. How do people get the book? yeah, wherever they get the wherever good books are sold <laughs> wherever good books
1: are sold you know uh, it's on the global distribution so you know because it's a book specific to, Banking, it's a very niche book, I would say. Banking and credit unions, it's not yeah. just banking, but community based financial institutions. I'd say, you know, actually, I think any financial institution could use it, but it's particularly yeah. useful for the community based. They probably won't be offering them in the independent bookstores because it's such a niche, niche product. So they'll probably have to go to like the Amazons yeah. and the Barnes and Nobles of the world to get it, but I appreciate anybody getting it. And I, I do want to point out that 10% of the net proceeds is going to canines for warriors for that. Thanks for mentioning that, which is a charity designed to reduce the suicide rate among our veterans, which is 1.5 times the national rate. And of course, me being a veteran, I'm sensitive to that. So 10% of the proceeds will go towards that charity. So thank you for that shout out, Jim.
0: And this is definitely a book, by the way, if you're a leader in a financial institution, get your high letter out because it's not going to be something you just read from cover to cover. No, you're going to have to stop. You're going to have to think about it. You're you're going to put margin notes in it the way I used to read books from Tom Peters and uh, Don Peppers and a lot of the others, you know, all these margin notes. But seriously, pick up the book if you're a smaller financial, even if you're a bigger organization. Just because Jeff really focused on smaller institutions, there's a whole lot to be learned by the big guys as well. So thanks again, Jeff. Thank you, Jim. You know, what a great interview with an old friend, a, a person I've known for years and who really is always focused really on the community organization. I know I talk a lot about what can be, and a lot of the stuff I talked about really deals with the biggest financial institutions. That is not to degrade or make it feel like the community organizations are important. They're very important. In fact, they're gonna be more important as consumers wait and look for those organizations that are aligned with their beliefs and their thinking. And that's where the community banks can really thrive. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, Just raised the top five banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we're doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience and financial marketing for the digital banking report. Also, if you want to keep tabs on our recent interviews and podcasts and reports, be sure to subscribe to the financial brand. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Roll-Hoffman, and video producer, Will Fritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, embrace change, take risks, disrupt yourself, and support the veteran near you.
1: You've got questions, we've got answers.